welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. So welcome to episode 20 of Sleep Talk. And joining us this month, we've got our guest, Simon Frenkel, and our regular co-host, Moira Junger. Hi, Moira. Hi, Dave. Hi, Simon. Hi, everyone. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me back. Oh, you did such a good job on the other times you've been on the <laughs> podcast. We had, we had to have you back. Yeah, it's almost like you're our um, roving reporter. Well, I'm just disappointed you... I've only been given 25 minutes. I could have had a few hours to discuss this, so uh, we'll see how we go. Yeah, we'll get into it. It's such a rich meeting, the sleep meeting, um, and so much to talk about. So, yeah, we'll we'll draw you out on a few topics. So those of you who've heard Simon before will know he's a respiratory and sleep disorders physician at Western Health and one of the directors of Lung and Sleep Victoria, where he consults in respiratory and sleep medicine. Simon's also the co-chair of the Sleep Physicians Council of the Australasian Sleep Association, so brings a lot of skills to the podcast and you know someone I always found is very insightful so we really will draw on that. So the theme for this month's podcast is the Sleep 2017 meeting. So it's the largest international sleep meeting. It's always US based because it's convened by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine and the Sleep Research Society, but usually well attended by sleep researchers and clinicians from all around the world. And what was the attendance like this year, Simon? Yeah, I think it was pretty much on, on par with what it had been previously. It's always very hard to tell. It's it's held over such a geographically large area with multiple concurrent sessions, but it seemed as busy as it ever was. Yeah, and often there's around 6,000 delegates and both researchers as well as clinicians. And there's also products, and we'll get into that as well. So what's been in the news this month? What's caught your eye, Moira? One of the things that caught my eye was hearing you on ABC Talkback Radio. And I must say, you did an excellent job. I really, really enjoyed listening to that. It went on for quite a while. You had a good chunk of at least 15 minutes, wasn't it? Yeah, it was about 25 minutes 25. on air, on air yeah. in the end, yeah. It was just really nice. And I, and I know that I've got a vested interest in you coming across well because I'm associated with you. <laughs> but I was really proud. I, was really, I thought that was really, really nice to hear. And some of my family members had alerted me to it that, they said, David Cunnington's going to be on, turn on the radio. And my husband was yelling from upstairs. I said, yeah, I'm already listening to it downstairs. <laughs> and, uh, and I just was really, I thought it was really great because it was just a lovely overview of a range of different types of sleep disorders and to have good information plus sensitivity to the complexity of the, of the issues. And you didn't have straight out academic type answers. It was sort of like it is an understanding that's murky. Yeah. Isn't it? Oh, well, thank thank you, Moira. That's nice feedback. And it's nice, you know, having a bit more space, like to have 25 minutes like we did and about to take talk back does allow you that softness or that ability to... To explore the issues. Yeah, to explore things. Whereas I think that's one of the things I like about radio too, whereas for television it's like 90 seconds, bang, get get your message. No depth sometimes. Yeah, Yeah, where's the nuance? Often you you can't get that as much. What else has been in the the news besides you? (laughs) I mean, including you. Well, I was going to ask you about Sleep Awareness Week. So that actually starts July 3rd. In Australia? Yes, yes, exactly. So this is the big, our big chance, Sleep Awareness Week for the Sleep Health Foundation in association with the, uh, the CRC, the you know, Cooperative Research Centres, ASA, of course, Australasian Sleep Association, to make, a, to make everyone aware of the importance of sleep. And this, this year the particular theme is the importance of alertness and productivity and safety and proper scheduling and proper consideration of all sort of sleep issues in the workplace. And then therefore, you know, happy workplace a uh, happier, healthier person and vice versa. So that's the theme. There'll be hopefully lots of media interest. So when we speak about this next month, looking back on what type of uptake we had of the press releases that we're preparing, 
Because the thing is, and you'll, I don't know if you're aware, you're finding this as well, but at the moment it's really hard to get good traction on some sleep stories mm-hmm. because there's just so much world news in other domains. You know, we're being trumped by <laughs> Trump. Yeah. <laughs> International elections and terrorism. There's just so many other things that the, the sleep stories are a little bit soft. So hopefully we'll get a bit of traction yeah, this I, week. I did see something about the swans on Albert Park like not reproducing because of changes in the light and the colour temperature of the lights around Albert Park Lake. Oh, and I thought, how cool is that? That's cool. I missed that one. Yeah, because yeah. it really is bringing in that light. And it's not so much about work productivity, do we get more done, yeah. but really, you know, looking at reproduction. Yeah. Oh. Obviously, our, our episode last month on winter and light and winter blues and the winter solstice was well received. Yeah, so I got a lot of good feedback and mm. lots of people and... You know, it happens with every episode. I get messages from people that I go, oh, really? That's interesting. You heard it too. So, yeah, lots of people listening and found the episode really helpful. So that that was really good. Uh, so another thing to highlight is a new podcast on sleep from Ian Dunican. Uh, so Ian's been a guest on this podcast on episode four, and his expertise that he talked to us about was about sleep and sporting performance. Uh, Ian's podcast is called Sleep for Performance Radio, and I can highly recommend it. Ian's really got a wealth of knowledge, and I think that'll really uh, be a good listen and worth listening to. Great. Is it how many episodes in are there? Uh, two. So okay. Ian's two episodes in. He's got yeah. an introductory episode and yeah. then one where he's had an interview. Great. But he's got all the gear and he's up and running and good, good to go. To, I'll tune in. There's another media story. You were, were you involved in the sleep eating one on Channel 7? I was. Of course. <laughs> I was, I was trying to keep it away from being sensational, and uh, I, th- I think I did a reasonable job. You always worry when TV station comes to you and says, we want to do a story on sleep eating and how weird it is, mm. um, that you do want to have it as a positive thing, that there is help the, available, yes, and yes. it's actually pretty common. It's not that and, weird. Yeah. It seems weird, but it's, it's there's sort of some reasonable things behind it that you can address and then have some, some outcomes that are better. So this was sleep eating as a, as a sleepwalking type disorder or people who sort of eat during wakefulness and gain weight in that way? Yes, yeah, so both. So we, we both talked a bit about sleep-related eating disorder and that was the main focus because often in the popular media that's the, the stranger thing, you know, getting up and eating during your sleep. But uh, I tried to talk about nocturnal eating syndrome as well, that sort of insatiable hunger that people can get if they're awake uh, at night. And, you know, surprisingly consistent symptoms we see in lots of people with sleep disorder. And I think it does need to be dealt with in a sympathetic way because a lot of people, particularly with sleep-related eating disorder, experience a high level of distress from it. So to then sensationalise it as part of a you know a three-minute grab on a story may push people away from seeking treatment. So um, I didn't see the story, but I hope that you would have dealt with it in that way. Yeah, I was reasonably happy with the end product. Let's, let's just say that. So the theme for this month's podcast is the 2017 meeting, and I thought we'd take the opportunity to draw Simon out, as Simon had a chance to attend, about some of the key themes from the meeting in terms of research and themes of updates in clinical practice. One of the paradoxes for me of the meeting is it's a coming together of sleep experts from all around the world, and we do all the wrong things about sleep. We arrived the day before the meeting, flying, you know, in this case, almost 11 or 12 time zones away from where we're supposed to be, leave the day, you know, the afternoon, the conference ends, almost in a state of permanent jet lag, the 
duration of the conference. How did you go with that this year, Simon? Yeah, so I had uh, intractable jet lag the whole time I was there. I flew in, as you said, the day before, 14 hours behind, uh-huh. and the jet lag didn't remit, and that's largely, I think, due to the fact that you're spending – uh, your entire time inside, basically. And so those those external cues that you might get that would help re-entrain your clock just aren't there. And so you sort of uh, hover in this limbo of never being awake properly and not being able to sleep properly. And it was terrible. Oh, so we have some good information for us or should we just finish it now? <laughs> yeah, well, it's, <laughs> I, had to, I had to make my notes. I took notes <laughs> while I was there and I had to go through them on the plane on the way home so that I could make some sort of sense because the longer I leave it, uh, the less sense it makes. So I do have some stuff, yes. And it always is a paradox. You know, you're at a sleep meeting and arguably, you know, the guys in the world best at managing jet lag and a whole heap of people are asleep in lectures, particularly day day one in that first day postgraduate course. And a whole lot of caffeine and, you know, other things that probably we advise against. Exactly, and still people falling asleep. (laughs) All right, so let's get on and talk a bit, bit about the content. So the first sort of theme we wanted to talk about or topic was sleep in other medical conditions because often we think about sleep as this isolated thing or often people I see are very focused on sleep occurs in isolation, just fix the sleep, it'll fix everything else or the sleep's occurring independently of other things. But in actual fact, in other medical conditions, they can both impact on sleep and sleep can impact on them and they coexist. So what were the latest things in that, Simon? Yeah, I, mean, I think this this was quite interesting from my point of view because I'd as I was at the conference, I thought that I was just attending a whole lot of random symposia on completely unrelated topics. And then when I started looking at my notes afterwards, it became clear that there was this focus on sleep in other conditions. So it's not sleep disorders themselves, but as you said, how sleep is impacted by and impacts on other medical conditions. So there are a few in particular that I I guess wanted to cover that I, I found particularly interesting. And as clinicians, ones that we confront quite often and often pose some of our sort of more difficult, you know, sort of clinical management and diagnostic problems, the first of which is sleep in pain syndromes. Mm -hmm. So what's interesting from population-based studies is that pain syndromes and insomnia very commonly coexist. Um, so if you do, uh, you know, sort of what we call point prevalence studies, if you just look at a group of people now, a lot of them will have both insomnia and pain, but that doesn't tell you anything about causality. Mm-hmm. So there was some interesting data that was presented there that showed that if you are diagnosed with insomnia now, your chances of ultimately developing some sort of a pain syndrome are increased somewhere between two and threefold. And likewise, if you're diagnosed with a pain syndrome now, your likelihood of ultimately going on to developing insomnia is increased by a similar magnitude. So there does appear to be this sort of complex bidirectional relationship between the two. And I I think further than that, what was interesting is that when the two coexist, you've then got a difficult problem. What we found, not we, what they described in, in people with what they call sort of pain insomnia is that their risks of then going on to develop depression, anxiety, retiring early from work was significantly increased. So the difficulty then becomes, well, how do you sort of manage these people? And some of the things that were discussed were the various sort of pharma- pharmacological interventions, but also the psychological ones as well. Any hot tips for that? Because that's something I, I, yeah, I struggle with. It's really hard. It's, it's a really, a really challenging group of people. It is hard because we know that that sleep loss and sleep fragmentation increase sensitivity to pain. So it yes. seems 
good to target sleep and hopefully improve pain. What one group has shown is that pre-sleep levels of cognitive arousal, so essentially hyperarousal, pain itself predict poor quality sleep. Yes. So that if you can chip in on the hyperarousal and chip in on the insomnia, yes. you might then improve your pain. Yes. But there was a meta-analysis that was published that looked at um, CBTI in people with pain syndromes, basically showing that you can improve their sleep, you can improve their reports of fatigue, but pain didn't come out in the wash. So mm. it seems like we can't really impact on their pain by giving them CBTI. Mm. But we can impact on other things. Yeah. yeah. And I guess what that needs to be countered with is, well, you know, the very wide use of medication. And the evidence for that is that the effect sizes both in terms of pain measurements and sleep measurements are modest. So it's one of these, uh, you know, approaches of, you know, multimodal therapy. Yeah. And it really is a nice example of, you know, trying to, if you do try and tackle just one thing, you're not going to get there. Whereas if you do tackle a number of different things and take a broader approach, you're going to get a much better outcome. And I think, you know, I think we're much better placed in Australia with our healthcare system and the way we practice than, say, in the U.S., to manage that. And often in the US, it's very siloed healthcare. You see your pain specialist and see a whole range of different specialists, but there's not a coordinator of care. Whereas, you know, in Australia, at least there's that push to have a good GP, a good coordinator of care and good better communication to, between the specialist groups. Yeah, but unfortunately, I think that it still exists through that sort of GP mediator sure. and that we're not necessarily having that direct dialogue, which we probably should be to optimise sort of outcomes. It's often, you know, you see the patient write the letter back to the GP with a copy going to the pain specialist, but there's never that well, at least in my experience, that sort of uh, two-way conversation that we probably should be having. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I agree with you. We, we could do better again with that team-based approach. And, you know, Moira, I've learned that with you, you know, working over a number of years where we actually work in the same premises and meet together and talk about people together, we actually, you know, do a yeah, lot better job. It does. I'm just thinking too about the chronic pain groups and things like that, that uh, in hospitals and it would be wonderful to have a one of us, you know, a sleep specialist coming in to address the sleep part of, of pain. And I don't know whether that happens very often. Do you? I, I'm never involved in any, any pain No, it does or, serendipitously. You know, Giselle, who we both know yeah. and work with, has worked at... And um, the listeners know. <laughs> yeah, has worked at a pain clinic and has an interest in sleep, mm. so has that overlap. But that's unusual. I think that's just yeah. Yeah, coincidental. I think she uses, she uses sort of mindfulness-type strategies that, that will tackle both pain and sleep. Is that... Is that yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, that's right. So, and it's sort of the pain, the stuff you were hearing about at the sleep conference, it was pretty much the sort of the chronic pain. There wasn't, a, was there a sense, of, was there any sense about acute? It was pain, no, like so this was more chronic pain yeah. and variably described, but largely sort of fibromyalgia yeah. type yes. pain rather than people with specific chronic pain syndromes yeah. as such, sort of, you know, lower back pain. Yes. So, yeah. and they're probably the ones that we're seeing that more generalized, as the fibromyalgia, generalized muscle achiness, pain, yeah. where we know that it's got very profound impacts on sleep yes, and daytime sure. function. Mm. So, yeah, sort of very much the type of patient that we're seeing clinically. Mm. And then Alzheimer's disease was something else you wanted to talk about? Yeah, so there was there was a very interesting symposium looking at um, sleep in neurodegenerative disease, particularly uh, uh, particularly Alzheimer's disease, which you know I sort of thought was very interesting because we know that people with advanced Alzheimer's disease almost invariably have very profound disturbances of both sleep and circadian function. Mm -hmm. What I didn't know was that 
one of the earliest manif clinical manifestations of, of Alzheimer's disease almost in the prodromal phase is that people's sleep efficiency starts diminishing so that the percentage of time they're sleeping, spending in bed asleep starts dropping off. What's known about the pathogenesis of Alzheimer's disease is that often decades before the clinical declaration of the condition is that there are deposits of a protein called amyloid beta in the brain. And that's thought to be one of the most important markers of the ultimate development of, of Alzheimer's disease. What I hadn't been aware of was that sleep disruption and sleep loss can actually cause more amyloid beta to be deposited. Mm -hmm. So there's a suggestion that not only is sleep affected by Alzheimer's disease, but sleep sleep loss might be one of the factors that's causing it to develop. Wow. So yeah. that if we targeted sleep early, that you might potentially be able to change the course of disease. Is that via maybe undiagnosed sleep apnea, for instance, and things like that? Not so much. Because if you had difficulty with sleeping, say, insomnia, you might know about it. Or was it... You know, sleep loss from that way or sleep, yeah, sleep loss from... They know. didn't discuss it. I, yeah. I got the impression it was more that subclinical sleep loss. It might yeah. be insomnia or mm -hmm. people who are just not sleeping now as well as they did before okay. and a bit more time awake at night. Yes, yeah. So it's really difficult because you're talking about a very subtle manifestation very early on that mm. a lot of people probably wouldn't be even seeking help for. No. Because yeah. I'm getting older, I'm not older, sleeping as well. I'm busy, yeah. I'm you know, tired all the time with kids and work. And yeah. They, yeah. So was there talk then of trying to reconcile that dilemma? You know, there's this talk about you give people with Alzheimer's um, sleeping pills, benzodiazepines, for example, that exacerbates Alzheimer's and causes falls. But maybe if poor sleep, causes you more amyloid beta deposition, maybe use of a hypnotic improved sleep prevents amyloid beta deposition. It wasn't discussed specifically, but that was certainly the inference from the from the person who was speaking about it that you know that sleep might be one of the targets, certainly early on. But it's a matter of how you pick those people because yeah. you don't know because this mm. this is someone who's got a, a very common description of a sleep complaint as 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 you get older and that doesn't declare until ten or fifteen years down the track that they've actually got some sort of cognitive impairment and then the penny drops and by that time the bull's bolted. Yeah. But that would certainly be a target, I, I think, for clinicians. Yeah, so maybe in the future, you know, our people we're seeing maybe over the age of 50 with insomnia or new onset insomnia, maybe we're doing some sort of PET-spec'd metabolic type of brain scan to look at amyloid beta deposition or amyloid beta levels and then triaging their, their treatment approach based on what you say? Yeah, it would it would surprise me greatly if there people weren't if there weren't already people doing that. I think there seems to be a bit of groundswell of uh, you know of interest in this now. And I think the other thing that was interested so that's sort of got to do with the sleep loss side of things. But there was another group who's shown that the density of melanopsin containing um, cells in the in the retina. So these are the cells that sort of talk to the clock are also diminished early in the course of Alzheimer's disease. So sort of the early onset of circadian dysfunction as well. Mm -hmm. um, that again might impact on um, disease progression. So there's a couple of different arms of sleep that might be affected in the preclinical uh, course of the disease. So talking about circadian function, what about circadian function in other conditions? Yeah, so this this is for me one of the, sort of one of the more interesting talks I went to, and it was a talk on circadian rhythms and cancer. Mm -hmm. And the first talk, you know, of all people, was given by an oncologist, so a cancer specialist, talking about circadian rhythms in cancer, which is just I think we've come a long wow, way yeah. in terms of the sort of people who've got interest in this. 
And actually, just as a side note, some of your listeners might have heard of Phyllis Z, who's a very well-known um, both researcher and clinician in circadian medicine. And she's actually started up a circadian medicine clinic. So this is not dealing with you know delayed sleep phase disorder, but this is de- dealing with the circadian manifestations and implications of various conditions. Mm-hmm. So I think it's sort of interesting in terms of where sleep medicine might ultimately be going. Yeah, absolutely. I can certainly see a role for exactly that, a circadian rhythm management service. And it doesn't matter what the problem is, pain, medication, mental health, mental health yeah, you, you need your circadian rhythm managed. So you go to that service. Yeah, and, and the, the question is why? And, you know, because you've, you've got the master clock sitting in the, in the suprachiasmatic nucleus in your brain, but um, about 30% of all the genes in your body in every cell are under some sort of circadian influence. So that is why I guess circadian disturbance can have such sort of protein manifestations and, and impact on disease. Mm-hmm. And particular, I guess, getting back to the, that discussion of cancer where whatever the cancer you've got might be is characterized by an abnormal sort of proliferation of cells. But it's known that that, that proliferation of cells doesn't occur uniformly across a 24-hour period. So there's some circadian influence. Mm-hmm. So there was talk in this symposium about um, circadian factors, both in terms of cancer risk and in terms of cancer treatment. And the cancer risk one was interesting in that some of it appears to be sort of trait-related, that you're sort of born with it. And there's a bit of evidence that abnormalities of a number of um, circadian clock genes not only increase your risk of getting prostate cancer, but increase your risk of dying from prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. There's other work that's shown that circadian dysfunction in people with colon cancer increases risk of dying from that, which gets onto sort of the, I guess, the state-related stuff that's happening to you at the time. There there are a number of cancers now that have been shown to be more prevalent in in shift workers. So breast cancer is the most well-known one, but evidently uterine cancer and... um, uh, and colon cancer, all more common in shift workers, which is why I guess the World Health Organization lists, lists shift workers as a probable carcinogen. So in a treatment sense, do we have in the chemotherapy ward, do we change the lights and control lighting exposure or do we put people on you know, retimer devices to use well, light therapy? Well, very possibly, yes. And it's a matter, I guess, at the coalface of how you measure circadian timing because, as you know, it's not very easy to do in an office setting. And so the... The, the oncologists are using sort of a very rudimentary and probably inaccurate way of trying to determine that. And one of the other people who spoke there was uh, Shantha Rajaratnam, who was sort of talking about other ways that we might be able to, to measure clock timing. But it certainly appears to be important. There's, they were talking about um, a particular study looking at a chemotherapeutic agent, 5-fluorouracil. So it's a very common agent that's used. And what they found, it's administered intravenously, is that within individual patients, so this is not between patients, but within a particular patient, depending on the time of day that you administered it, the serum levels of 5-FU could fluctuate threefold. Uh-huh. So clearly with some of these things in terms of metabolism, timing is crucial. Yeah, And there have been a number of studies as well that have shown that you know, timing of radiotherapy um, will predict response to um, in, in various cancers as well. So just how we measure it and how we time it, I think is something that will be determined in coming years. But clearly there's this is where things are going, yeah, you know, really tailored medicine. 
Yeah. And from my point of view, listening to this, because um, I deal with a lot of people, obviously one of the biggest problems is worry about not sleeping and the consequence, the health consequences of that. So I'm alarmed for, on their behalf, thinking that they're already, a lot of people already feel that they've got on early onset dementia because they haven't slept well and they feel they're worried about their memory and their, their mum or the grandma or dad had dementia. And now they're going to think, oh, I'm going to get cancer earlier or my treatment of cancer is not going to be so good because of my sleep and you know, pain. I'm going to develop a pain syndrome or, or, or not get rid of my pain syndrome. So I guess we have to always keep that in the back of our mind, don't we? With Well, I do with this messaging around the importance of yeah. sleep, but also that and we do know there's these link, but to try and keep a lid on the anxiety around that. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a really, very fine line you walk. Isn't it? Yeah. Because I obviously, um, yeah, we want to promote sleep. Like we know how important it is and we know that these things are emerging. But have to get people, because the main thing is to keep your anxiety and hyperarousal down about to get better sleep, full stop, wherever you are, whatever's going on with you. So Yeah, it is a really tricky balance mm. of yeah, highlighting the importance but yeah, not putting too much pressure on and how to strike that yeah. balance. I think, you know, we'll have to learn and it'll be tricky because the media doesn't do a great job of subtleties of messaging no. and softening messages. You can see the headlines from these things we're talking about, can't you? You know, we're, we're giving it depth and exploring it, and but you can see a quick killer type headline. And, mm. Yeah, don't sleep well tonight, you're going to get Alzheimer's, pain's going to be worse yeah. and you're going to both develop cancer and do worse with your cancer. That's where we're at so far, Simon? Uh, to summarise the last 10 minutes, yes. <laughs> All right, well, we better change tack. Let, let's talk about a different topic. So what was there on insomnia? Yeah, so I guess the, 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 two, the two main areas that I was interested in in terms of insomnia were both um, pharmacological treatment for insomnia and, and also this whole concept of uh, insomnia associated with um, short objective sleep times. The reason that pharmacological treatment of insomnia has sort of um, – I guess gotten a Guernsey is that the um, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine this year released a consensus statement about the use of hypnotic therapy in insomnia and and hearing about how that was developed was actually quite interesting in that they started off with about a thousand papers and after their literature review they narrowed the relevant papers down to between seventy and eighty so our entire experience with hypnotic medication in insomnia for all time is seventy papers yeah. And this is all across all drugs. Wow. Yeah. And most of these trials are very short and most of them are funded by the, by the pharmaceutical industry, which using the, um, the guidelines that the consensus statement used, it downgrades the strength of the evidence mm-hmm. with those things. So it, it, it means that, you know, we're basing decisions not on a lot of scientific evidence. Yeah. The other interesting thing that I found from 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 that discussion was what they determined to be relevant effect sizes with regards to treatment response. So for example, improvement in sleep latency, so the time to get to sleep, if that was more than 10 minutes, then that was on a sleep study, then that was considered to be a a positive outcome. Mm-hmm. Likewise, for wakefulness after sleep onset, the time that you're spending awake during the night, if that had improved by 20 minutes on a sleep study, that would be considered a positive result. And I've often thought, you know, sort of talking to my patients about that, if I said, well, I can buy you an extra 20 minutes of sleep during the night, I don't know that many of them are going to turn around saying, that's really all that I need. Yeah. 
So from my point of view, it sort of it it means that the pharmacotherapy is part of what we're doing, but it can never be all that we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And it also that data, which has been around for a long time, it just raises the questions for me: is what is what are we actually treating? Because even though those averages are twenty minutes, people can feel a whole lot better. And so, what is that? Is it minutes? Is it they're getting more than what they think? Does it change something about sleep? Does it change how they respond to sleep? Yeah, I don't know. And does it matter? Yeah. You know, if, if they if, if a patient comes back saying, look, whatever you've done, it's working and things are better, you know, the fact that we may not be able to measure that on a sleep study may not be, yeah. you know, may not be the end point. Yeah. Yeah, and that's where some of those scales in insomnia I find in clinical practice much more helpful, like the insomnia severity index that just captures distress and impact uh, rather than just minutes of sleep. But I think, and so I guess sort of moves on to the next point, is that the, the minutes, though, might sometimes be important. Yeah. And this this sort of gets onto that point of um, what we're seeing increasingly in insomnia literature now of a particular phenotype of insomnia being insomnia associated with short objective sleep time. So this is not patient-reported sleep times, but sleep times on a sleep study. And the reason that this has, I guess, generated interest is there are particular guys in the US who have been looking at this for a while, showing that this particular phenotype of insomnia significantly increases risk of um, cardiovascular disease and of diabetes. So yet another, like we were saying before, more about another thing to worry about. You can add this to the list. Yes. Yes. Uh, And and by short, just define short. So short... Variable. Um, they talk about less than six hours as being that's the cutoff. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a bit of discussion though about well, you bring someone into a sleep st- a sleep laboratory for a night. How accurate is that in terms of measuring their yeah. habitual sleep at home? And no one's really got the answer to that because a lot of people sleep longer, surprisingly. But oh, most would probably report, "Oh no, I didn't sleep so well. I had you know twenty two things all over my body." So it's hard to know, isn't it, that first night effect, how accurate it is? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I still – and I know that it's not sort of talked about as being indicated in people with insomnia, but I, I do find sleep studies very helpful mm. in, in, mm. in that group of patients, not only to exclude other sleep disorders, but just to have a look at what their sleep looks like. Yes. and particularly with people you know, who've got paradoxical insomnia where they might be sort of not perceiving sleep and wake – Ideally, it's an entry into that discussion, yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah. No, it's a common yeah. clinical situation. So if I'm seeing someone maybe referred on for a second opinion or from a psychiatrist, you know, they've, all the sleep drugs, they've all failed, they're not working, you know, the high doses really aren't doing what they're supposed to do. I'm really curious to see what's actually going on. And often what's going on is sleep isn't as bad as it feels and there is this disconnect and the medications at high doses have been used to try and change how it feels when it actually hadn't been as bad as what they thought. So it's a really tricky situation. So I wanted to ask you, Simon, you know, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine put out a statement a year or two ago about, you know, um, PSG shouldn't be a routine part of insomnia, but at their scientific meeting, there's data on, you know, PSG measured short sleep duration as an important phenotyping in managing insomnia. So was, it, was there a discussion trying to reconcile that? No, basically. I mean, I think I, I think what they are trying to achieve by that, by that 
practice guideline where you don't do it, it means that it's not a routine thing that someone walks in yep. your door complaining of insomnia and they leave that day with a sleep study. Yeah, uh, that that's sort of how I interpret it, and it doesn't mean that all of my insomnia patients will end up with a sleep study, but most of them will at some point along the way, and it may not be visit one; it might be further down the track when we're sort of nutting through yeah. a few other issues. Yeah, good point, and and we see a select subset of people with insomnia as well. You know, the majority of it's managed in primary care by general practitioners and psychologists. And so mm-hmm. by the time someone's come to a sleep specialist, there's usually other reasons to, to think about that. Yep. What other, other highlight? What was the trade display like? Did you spend much time in there? Uh, I did. The trade display is enormous. There's probably, there'd probably be over a hundred, uh, people displaying wow. things. Yes. Um, a lot of sort of low quality stuff. Mm. So you've got the, um, you know, the usual, um, you know, big ticket items of the CPAP companies and the larger pharmaceutical companies mm. um, displaying. But there's a lot of aisles of just, you know, people selling Gadgets. furniture oh. and oh, not furniture. even so much the ga- – oh. yeah, furniture. Oh, yeah. Bed, like beds. Um, oh, they had some guy with this, you know, wall unit where a bed sort of flips out oh. of it so that your consulting room can then become a sleep laboratory that oh. night. <laughs> yes, although it's very big, the quality of a lot of it is not that high. Yeah, but I like those little side alleys. There's, there's gold. There, there, there's always some fun. It's 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 nice for amusement. But uh, yeah. no, I, there were a few. There are a couple of things that um, uh, that I thought were interesting. Um, one of which, and I think Dave, you might have talked about this before. It was a a, a cooling device for insomnia. Oh, Did you yeah. get a Kickstarter yes. of that or something? Uh, no, it hasn't been on Kickstarter, but that's been in the wind for a long time. So it's um, based on data from uh, Eric Nofsinger, who's done a lot of work on brain imaging and showing the prefrontal cortex doesn't shut off particularly well in people with insomnia. So developed a device to cool the forehead and therefore the prefrontal cortex, shown it works, um, gets people to sleep faster. They got FDA approval. It used to be called Cereve, but now they've rebranded as EBB. So EBB, so the EBB device, and you know, looking to be commercially available, I think early in 2018 is the timeline. But yeah, I hope to get a prototype to have a bit of a play with before then. Yeah, so I, I sat down in a recliner chair and tried it on, and uh, so it cools. It cools to about uh, somewhere between 14 and 16 degrees is mm-hmm. where they think it should go, and it's got a, a number of different settings that you could have, and it was actually pretty cool. I mean, I um, I think it Hard switches off after. A, yeah, oh, was it cool as in uh, cool as in temperature wise? <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> uh, it was an nifty looking device, <laughs> but it, it it did feel quite cold. So, but the, the data's there. I mean, it's not high quality data. I mean, it's you know one yep. night and they, yeah. the, the sham. I don't know. It was a great sham, uh, but they did show improvements in um, in in time it took to get to sleep and to the more deeper stages of sleep as well. Yeah, could you sleep with it the whole night? Like I've seen the pictures and I thought yeah, it's pretty big actually, bigger than I thought. How would you go keeping it on? I think I would struggle. I think it turns off after about half an hour automatically. So it's really there to help with sort of sleep initiation. But having only worn it for a few minutes, I think it'd be, well, it might well take your focus off. I've got to try and get to sleep (laughs) and then sort of more about this cold thing on your flight before it. Uncomfortable, like brain freeze or like ice cream headache. Getting there. (laughs) Getting there. Yeah. So it'd be nice to, I think it'd be nice to have a play around with. Mm. Uh, And as you said, it, it is based in, some degree of science. Oh, the basic science behind it's pretty rock solid. For me, the question is going to be about the implementation. You know, can it actually do what we need it to do comfortably, reliably, and does that then translate to a clinical outcome? Be good. I mean, it'd be nice to have a, a few more adjuncts. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, any devices that 
you know, something to that's different from a medication, that's different from our psychology-based strategies, you know, a different, different approach for treating insomnia would be great. So in, in your notes you sent over, you said about didgeridoo. So there's some didgeridoo Yeah, so this is a, back well. to adjunctive therapy again. <laughs> One of the first things I heard when I walked into the very large exhibition hall was the sound of a didgeridoo being played. And uh, sure enough, when I saw him down, there was a guy playing a didgeridoo and it's being marketed for treatment of snoring and sleep apnea. Oh, like a... Buteco or sort of like a, that, you know, like with breathe, changing your breathing. Or, no, I or. think it's it's. I couldn't really nail them down. I mm-hmm. think it's more along the lines of these training upper airway dilator muscles to be more taut, and and sort of improving airway anatomy is sort of how I understand it. And the data on which this is based is actually probably about ten years old yeah. now, showing that it improved. I think sleepiness in in a, in a group of people who are doing it. And a very modest improvement in yeah. the severity of sleep apnea. So yeah. they play the didgeridoo like uh, before bed or, or during no, the day. Twenty as well. minutes, four or five times a week is what they recommend. Nice. Yeah. So the original paper, and this this always struck me as bizarre, but it was a didgeridoo instructor in Germany had twenty five people playing the didgeridoo, yeah. and it got published in the British Medical Journal. Now surely we should own that research. <laughs> if you're doing didgeridoo research, it's got to be in Australia. So where on earth do you get a German didgeridoo instructor based in Germany training Germans to play the didgeridoo to treat their snoring and sleep apnea? Anyway, oh, so that so was ten, 10 years ago. It was yeah. six days a week, 25 minutes. Six days a week was the instruction, and they did show a little bit of an effect. But maybe so, the relaxation of doing something fun, you know. From yeah, well, that was the curious bit for me. Like, you know, relaxing, yeah, music, listening the, to music. Because they're a bit less sleepy, even though it had a really modest effect on sleep apnea. So I wonder whether mm. it was, yeah, just re- relaxation and feeling a bit better about yourself. And and there was also partner-reported improvements as well. You know, the partner was feeling less disrupted at night as well, mm. and that was then taken as a, as a possible indication that there was less snoring. Yeah. So what they're, they're selling, the, these things go for about $200, US and it's basically it's a, what they call a travel didgeridoo. So it sort of uh, it's, uh, it comes apart to right. sort of three like or four components. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly right, and you sort of join yeah. it up, and there's an instructive DVD. Mm. Does, does it come with an acoustic sort of chamber so you're not upsetting everyone else when you're playing your didgeridoo when you travel? as well? I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, they're pretty loud, aren't they? But that would be, I mean, wouldn't it be great to have, if there, if that was something that could improve the upper airway muscles and, yeah. and improve I, your... I must confess, I do have a couple of patients where I have prescribed playing the didgeridoo, that to this day are really? playing the didgeridoo to manage their snoring and sleep apnea. Right. Based on that paper? Based on you that British Medical, based on the British Medical Journal paper. They live out the back you know, out the back of town, up in the bush, and they're pretty happy with playing the didgeridoo. And like in lieu of, of CPAP or in lieu of surgery? And, in in, and lieu, of, in lieu of CPAP. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that should be followed up. <laughs> so thanks very much for all those insights, Simon. That's been really helpful. Are you going next year to Baltimore? Absolutely, yeah. This is on my timetable every year. I think it's a really a really good conference. Um, you know, there's a lot of hard work while we're there, but I think it's – it's a great way to get information and also just to, I guess, recalibrate yourself in terms of, you know, whether your practice is consistent with what other people are doing. Because um, I think a lot of, you know, what we do is behind closed doors and you can get very set in your ways and this, I think, just keeps it a bit fresh. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I'd always find it a really good meeting and just taking time out of the day-to-day practice to focus on, you know, what the latest research uh, is. So as we've got Simon with us as a co-host, we're going to take advantage of Simon's expertise. So Simon, what's a clinical tip 
for our listeners? Yes, I thought it'd probably be a bit more of an insomnia sort of focus and probably where my thinking is in terms of insomnia at the moment. And I don't think it's entirely straightforward. On on the one hand, with the most recent um, AASM description of insomnia, it's become a much more simplified diagnosis rather than the various insomnia subtypes. It's just now considered a chronic insomnia disorder. And I think that that's helpful in a way in that it tells us that a lot of our patients with insomnia have got the various subtypes of insomnia contributing to their overall picture but to varying degrees and so that we need to be tailoring our therapeutic approaches accordingly, that it's not just a one-size-fits-all. I think it's helpful with this distinction of um, short sleep time versus normal sleep time, partly because not so much for the longer-term health outcomes, but uh, we didn't discuss it before, but there, there was a paper published earlier in this year indicating that those people were more likely to be refractory to cognitive behavioural therapy. Yeah. And so I guess thinking about pharmacotherapy, it does have a role in some people with insomnia at some point. Yeah. So it's probably not so much a, a clinical pearl, but just, I guess, an approach to insomnia treatment that the ways that patients can present and the ways that they respond to treatment are very diverse and that we need to be sort of agile in terms of our treatment. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I certainly, that's been my thinking the last couple of years is not all insomnia is the same and trying to sort of kid ourselves that, you know, the same approach is going to work for everybody and there probably are phenotypes and we're getting a signal that that phenotype may be around sleep length. You know, I I think that really tells us here we've got to do a better job of phenotyping insomnia and trying to subdivide it and work on different treatment strategies. Yeah, I agree too. There's there's not one size fits all, I guess, is the the summary. And and even with the CBTI, I mean, you could probably talk this better, it's not just everyone gets the same package every time. It's very much tailored. It's very tailored. And that's I guess that's the the tricky bit about the online programs or the people who aren't necessarily experts delivering it, just to pick up the because it's, it's, it's all to do with the assessment really how you're going to treat it and different components of cbti will be emphasized and others might not be needed depending on how they're presenting what what really they're saying the problems are too like it might might not be that they want an extra 20 minutes of sleep it might be that they still want it, just don't want to be so distressed anymore so pick of the month Moira, do you want to do a pick or do you want to delegate your i'm pick? going to delegate mine to our very learned and capable guest <laughs> so yeah, I thought this this was an interesting one. There's there's a couple of different parts to it. The first was uh, an abstract that was presented at the conference, and I think Dave, you'll you'll like this one. So there was a group who looked at twenty thousand tweets from NBA players. Oh, done. I'm from- liking it already. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, about a hundred NBA players over about ten years, and they looked at tweets. And in particular, they were focused on tweets between the hours of um, 11 p.m. and 7 a.m. And what they showed is that if people were tweeting at those hours, then their next day performance, both in terms of their offensive game and their defensive game, was off. Wow. Wow. So I thought that was really nice. Yeah. 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 And what was interesting is, and I'm sure it was sort of fed to them by um, the AASM is that it was actually picked up sort of quite widely by the media there because it was the NBA playoffs at the time of the conference, yeah. so it was just timed perfectly. Yeah. But the way that the media picked up the story was really interesting. They presented it um, in an earnest way and there was no – I guess they didn't make light of it. It was said, yeah. well, this is potentially an issue and sort of um, technology late at night is potentially problematic 
And a number of the news outlets sort of went further and talked about sleeping athletes and in particular long sleeping athletes. So they're talking about LeBron James, who was playing for the mm-hmm. Cleveland Cavaliers, um, that he needs 12 hours of sleep a night. And they, you know, various other sportsmen, you know, Maria Sharapova, Roger Federer, Usain Bolt are also long sleepers. So mm-hmm. that the dialogue was very much sleep is really important and it's really important for our elite athletes. And it's just, it was a nice way to see this thing talked about rather mm-hmm. than sort of ridiculed. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, because we all know, we'd imagine that late night tweeting and staying up on your devices isn't good, but to have that concrete evidence, more and more of it is so useful. I like that. Thanks, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> so my, my pick of the month was uh, sort of a sleep case study. So it was a company called Hello that made the Sense device, which is a bedside sort of sleep environment and sleep tracker. Now, Hello and Sense launched in 2015, and they were a Kickstarter campaign. They raised over $4 million dollars. Then via venture capital, raised about $50 million and had a company valuation of about $300 million at one point, about a year ago. Um, lots of famous people put money into it and it was the next thing, this thing that was going to measure sleep and give everybody this insight into how to manage their sleep. This week, or actually about two weeks ago, shut the doors. Value zero, closing the business, everybody sacked, go home. And it's just a really nice insight into the life cycle of some of these devices. Sleep's definitely an area where there's lots of hype. You can sell a story. You know, everyone reckons there's lots of potential. But you've actually got to have something that works. And most of these consumer devices at the moment actually don't work. Mm -hmm. And so you sell a story, raise a lot of money, but two years down the track when it's time to deliver, there wasn't anything there. Mm. Is that where they fell over? They just couldn't demonstrate that it actually provided anything of importance they weren't to be honest they weren't even trying they they were going so hard on the money raising and what a great story of entrepreneurship and and stuff there's actually nothing of substance at all so you have to have some pretty good research even to start with really don't you think for something to to likely to be successful it seems like in this day and age no because in the same week that hello fell over dream launched on kickstarter and raised $11 million. <gasps> and what's and so, so it's a $500 device that measures EEG, that's going to tell you about your sleep, oh, and it's going to get you to sleep better. For the consumer, for the, at, the, at your home. Directed at consumers. Oh. And, you know, everything old is new again. So I think Dream is the 2017 version of Hello. Yeah. And come 2019, I think Dream might have raised some money, burnt it, and be, you know, moving on to the next thing. Anyway, it's an interesting case study of this area where there's lots of hype and lots of talk and lots of and, promise. And but lots no, of hope, yeah. Yeah, lots of hope. For the consumer. But no one's really delivering with these consumer devices around sleepers yet. So things to look out for uh, is Sleep Awareness Week in Australia, uh, which starts today, July 3rd. Um, also worth uh, looking out for sleep conferences. We talked about Sleep 2018, which will be in Baltimore in early June. But World Sleep Congress is on in Prague in early October and the Sleep Down Under meeting is on in Auckland in late October. I'm actually skipping that and going to Jalanda in Punjab in India to the um, Southeast Asian Academy of Sleep Medicine sleep meeting. Uh, Really looking forward to that. And look out for our next episode, which will be published on August 7th. And we're going to talk about why treat sleep apnea. There's been some important Australian research on that in the last 12 months. And the ABC podcast we talked about last episode about some of the challenges in treating sleep apnea. So we'll try and nut out why bother at all. Yeah, that'll be good. Look forward to that. Thanks for listening. 
It's been our pleasure. Please keep sending any suggestions to podcast at sleephub.com.au. And, of course, if you like the podcast, review, review us on iTunes, subscribe via, via any podcast catcher or via the Sleep Talk app. Thanks a lot, and thanks, Simon, for all your help. Thanks, thanks for having so, me back. Yeah, thanks so much, Simon. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.